We want to welcome you, as I did at the beginning of the service, to our Christmas service. We're going to have another Christmas service next week, and really we're going to focus on the person and the work of Christ. So not just His incarnation, but the whole of His life and His death and resurrection as well, which is why I picked the text that I did. The text that we're going to be reading today comes out of the Gospel of John in chapter 18, the Gospel of John in chapter 18. So you can go ahead and open up to that passage as we prepare and as I get us into this passage. Now, the four Gospels that open our New Testaments, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're all biographical sketches of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, all of which, all the while, each Gospel has its specific theme. Though they're focusing in on the life of Christ, they all have specific themes and thrusts, but they all, what's similar, is they all gravitate towards the final week of Jesus' life. So that one-third of every gospel, and really one-third of all of the gospels, focuses in on what Christians call the Passion Week, the week of the Passion. So of the 89 chapters of the first uh, books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 30 of them focus on this single week in Jesus' life. Now, if you're writing a biographical on someone and a third of your biography focuses in on a single week, you're probably going to have a pretty slanted understanding of that person. Unless, unless of course, the events of that single week are definitive in that person's life, which is precisely why, again, the Gospels culminate at the cross in the passion of the Christ. Christianity, you see, is cross-centered. It's a cross-centered faith, and it's a Christ-centered faith. And the week of Christ's passion was and is the most important week that has ever been since the creation of the world. And the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the most important event in the history of the world. And thus, one-third of the Gospels are devoted to this small week, this small unit in Jesus' life. So then, beloved church, we observe this holiday, this Christmas season in our American tradition, what Americans and abroad, those have labeled Christmas, Christmas. And I want you to understand this holiday according to Christ. And so my sermon title this this afternoon is Christmas According to the Christ. Not media, not culture, not even your tradition, but Christmas as understood by Jesus Christ Himself. We celebrate not just His advent, His coming, but His life, His ministry, and His death and resurrection. He's the greatest gift that the world has ever known, and the greatest gift you will ever know personally and individually. And so the passage we're going to be looking at this afternoon comes out of the 18th chapter of John's Gospel, Christmas According to the Christ. Let me read our text, John 18, beginning in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from... Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves, that is the Jews, did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Then Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. 
Therefore, the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Ah, you are a king then. Jesus answered, You say rightly that I'm a king. For this cause I was born. And for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Let's pray. Lord, as we worship you, as we come now to understand what Christmas is, we hear your voice even before your condemner. For this reason I came. We celebrate your coming and we celebrate also your death. And as we're here in the Gospel of John, I pray that you would help us understand what you meant when you said to Pilate, for this reason I have come, for this reason I was born. Lord, help us understand this season in our lives according to the Christ. Help us to understand who we celebrate, not just in December, but in the whole of our lives. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given a reason to us for why you came and that we can understand it. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Now, the word Christmas is literally Christ's Mass. Now, we hear behind that Roman Catholic undertones, and while we as Bible-believing Christians deny the Catholic Mass, the meaning of the word has actually moved on. It now refers more to a season like we just prayed during the year than to a Roman Catholic doctrine or tradition. I even heard one pastor say in jest, Christmas, Christmas is more of a Spanish word than it is anything. He said, mas Christ, <laughs> more Jesus, and that's the spirit of the season, more Christ, because that's what it's about. It's about Jesus Christ. And you ought to know that the early church, the church in the apostolic age, did not celebrate Christmas. In fact, the only holiday on their celebratory calendar was Easter, the day of Christ's resurrection, and the week leading up to the resurrection. And the vast majority of Christians today, they celebrate Christmas, and so I'm not against celebrating and putting trees up and all this, as long as you know what's going on. Now, why do they drag pine trees in and fake trees or whatever kind of trees they bring in? Well, they drag in pine trees because it's the only thing that doesn't die in the winter. And so the ancients celebrated the solstice, and they celebrated the solstice by bringing in something that was yet alive. And so uh, there it is. That, that's just the general, that's why we have trees and yada, 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 but really, Christmas ought to be about Christ and is about Christ. Now, we celebrate as Christians, and the vast majority of Christians in the United States celebrate what's called Advent. Advent is a Latin word for come, coming. 
And so we celebrate the advent of our Lord. We celebrate his birth. We celebrate the arrival of Messiah or his first coming. And while we celebrate with the Christian world, I'm convinced that Christ was most likely not even born in the month of December. Because if you were a shepherd, you wouldn't take your little lambs out into the freezing air, in the freezing temperatures in the month of December. And it's actually, if we want to be more accurate, somewhere early spring, if not mid-spring, where Christ is born for the shepherds to hear the, angel, the angelic choir cry out glory to God in the highest. And so it's probably not December, and there's reasons for why we celebrate in December. We can talk about those over fellowship as we eat together. But regardless of the timing and regardless of the terms you employ, what's essential is that we recognize that Christmas or Advent or the holidays, whatever you call it again, is about Jesus Christ. And more than any specific time of the year, every day ought to be for the Christian about Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. We don't just celebrate His coming once a year in December, but our lives are worship services to the King who has come, who is come, and who is to come. And as we remember His entrance into the world, we can't help but think of His life and death. We can't help but think of His life, death, and resurrection, and rightly so. For it's Christ we celebrate, not just the baby in the manger, but as Basil said, the risen Christ who is seated now at the right hand of the Father. The whole of His person and the whole of His work from the manger to the mount of crucifixion, which is precisely why I picked this text because He's standing before His condemners just a few hours away from the cross with the whole of His three and a half year ministry behind Him and certainly His birth and His life in the city of Nazareth behind Him. And so we are culminating here in John 18 at the end of Jesus' earthly life. And he gives and says this definitive phrase, for this reason have I come, as he speaks to Pontius Pilate. He gives the reason for his coming. Jesus standing before his condemners says to Pilate, for this cause I was born and have come into the world. So this sermon is Christmas according to the Christ. And so this text is a perfect Christmas text. It's a perfect Christmas text. The dialogue with Pilate in which Jesus gives the reason for his coming, for his advent. The reason, if you will, for the season. And as we move through our text, let me give you an outline so you can follow along as we go. There's three characters in our text this afternoon. Very simply, the Jews... Pontius Pilate, and the last and main character is Jesus Christ. The Jews now, and here's how the outline overlaps, are in dialogue with Pilate. And Pilate then turns into the praetorium, into his governing quarters, and begins a dialogue with Jesus. What ends with Jesus really leading the dialogue and not Pilate. So let me set the stage before we move a little further. Now, weeks before Jesus' death, in a simple, straightforward manner, he laid out to his disciples the events that would eventually culminate in his death. Mark chapter 8, verse 31, the Son of Man, Jesus says, must suffer and be rejected and killed. Mark 9, 31, weeks before his discussion with Pilate, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. Mark 10, 33, the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, to the Romans, to Pilate. They will mock him and scourge him, spit on him and kill him. 
Now, he did all this. He prophesied and predicted all this so that his disciples might know and so that we might know that he had ordained and predestined and predetermined it all. What Jesus said to his disciples on the road to Jerusalem is exactly what we see unfolding in the Gospels before us. Jesus Christ, our sovereign Lord, is the one who determined it all. He's the one who determined what would take place every step along the way. And this afternoon, our text picks up in his being delivered over to the Gentiles, just as he promised. In fact, he's already been betrayed by the Jews, the Sanhedrin, and he is in our text. Look at verse 27 here. Rather, verse 28. He is led from Caiaphas. Now, who's Caiaphas? He's the high priest. He's the president, if you will, of the Jews and over the Jews. Caiaphas was the high priest during Jesus' time. And the text says that he's led from Caiaphas to the praetorium or to Pontius Pilate. Who was Pontius Pilate? He was the Roman appointed governor over the land of Israel. And Jesus is led to the praetorium, literally the governor's quarters. And the Jews are seeking a death sentence for this man from the Roman governor, from the Roman magistrate. But far from being a casualty, Jesus is is not a casualty, but he he is a conqueror who is in fact completely in control. And so we read in verse 32 that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Jesus' sovereign prerogative is now demonstrated, ironically, in his being unjustly condemned by his own people and led from Caiaphas now to Pontius Pilate the Gentile, just as Jesus said would happen. So look back down at verse 28. He's led into the praetorium where Pilate is. Now, Pilate's not usually in this place called the praetorium. This is the governor's quarters in Jerusalem. He's usually in Caesarea, which is 65 miles east on uh, the coast of the Mediterranean, a very beautiful city. But during the Passover season, when nationalism was high and all the Jews were patriotic and almost to the point of rioting, there was a need for a strong military presence in Jerusalem to prevent the riot and to prevent the revolt, to keep the peace. And so Pilate takes the 65-mile trek into Jerusalem and he sets up shop in the Praetorium, which is sort of like a fortress on the northern part of the city of Jerusalem. And verse 28 reads thus, that it was early morning, most likely about five in the morning or six in the morning. It was early morning. And again, what happened the night before by way of review was Jesus was tried before his Jewish brethren, before Caiaphas, the high priest, and he was condemned to death. According to Matthew's gospel in chapter 26, by and by the Jews tried to pin a false accusation on Jesus, but nothing would stick. And so the high priest, he got so frustrated with the fact that they couldn't pin anything on Jesus, he just stood right out of his seat and said, tell us plainly, are you Messiah? And Jesus responds in the affirmative. And so they declare him, they clap their hands and say, yes, he's a blasphemer. He's claiming to be the Messiah and they condemn him to death. But there's a glitch. Because the Jews do not have jurisdiction in Jerusalem to put anyone to death. They had to go to Rome 
who was in control of all capital punishment. And so if they're going to kill Jesus, Rome would have to be involved. And that's exactly, you see, what Jesus had predicted and said would happen. These are the Jews. They hated Jesus. They wanted Jesus dead. These are the Jews. They wanted Jesus dead. Not because Jesus had done anything wrong. Not because he was guilty of a sin. But because Jesus opposed their religious hypocrisy. First century Judaism was religious hypocrisy. It was grossly corrupted. And Jesus exposed and opposed that corruption. And the Jews, they hated Jesus because he was a threat to their entire system. He was a threat to their entire system in which they sat in the seats of authority. And let me just say, Jesus hates religious hypocrisy, period. If there's one group of people that Jesus clearly opposes, it's those who use religion as a means to entertain their own corruption. And these are the Jews of Jesus' time. So now... Having secured a reason to condemn Jesus, they lead him to Pilate. They want him to be killed. And they lead him to Pilate because they need an executioner. Look at verse 28, the latter half of the verse. The Jews bring him to the praetorium. It's early morning. They had just gone through the trial. He's condemned according to the Jewish leaders. But they themselves, having come to the praetorium, Look at this. This is amazing. They themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but they wanted to eat the Passover. Beloved, this is religious hypocrisy of the first order. This is religious hypocrisy in its finest. They take pains now to stay and remain ceremonially clean so that they can celebrate their little Jewish Passover holiday while their hands are covered in blood. They take pains to stay ceremonially cleaned while they condemn an innocent man. And this is just irony upon irony. The Jews had it all backwards. Now, why would they be ceremonially unclean if they walked into the courts of a Gentile? Well, the book of Numbers says this, that if anyone, a Jew, that is, comes into contact with a dead body, that they would be unclean for seven days. Now, why in the world, how does that apply to becoming unclean and walking into a Gentile's home or the praetorium here? Well, Jewish tradition and the Mishnah taught, because infant mortality rate back in those days was very high, that the Gentiles, what they would do with their... Um, uh, infants that died either in childbirth or along the way, they would bury them in their own homes. Or the Mishnah says, Jewish tradition said that they would flush them down some kind of drain system that was equipped in their homes. And so, for a Jew to walk into Gentile territories or home would be to come into contact with his dead body, and thus they would become unclean. But these Jews had it backwards. Had the Jewish leaders entered into the praetorium they wouldn't have been defiled by Pilate. They would have defiled Pilate. These religious hypocrites, and that's how wicked and corrupt they were. If there's anything that Jesus hates, it's religious hypocrisy. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Jesus says in Matthew 23. And beloved, if we're to take Jesus' words seriously, 
then this is the sin that we must never allow to have the slightest room in our own lives. Faithfully going to church, faithfully serving in ministry, participating in and doing all of the Christian things, all the while stubbornly refusing to release some expression of ungodliness in our lives? Well, why so serious, Pastor? Because a sin excused as slight tends to increase over time, does it not? And with it, one's proficiency in religious hypocrisy. Until one day, the sinner can live in blatant, bold-faced sin, yea, even crucifying a man without the slightest blip on their performance schedule for all of their religious duties. Hypocrisy has an amazing way of silencing our consciences to some of the ugliest of sins. And so here are the Jews. They want to stay ceremonially uncleaned while condemning a man who was innocent. And so they stay outside. Well, Pilate comes out to them. Pilate walks out to the Jews who have come and gathered right outside of his quarters. And thus, the proceedings begin. The dialogue begins. Look at verse 29. Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? What are the charges? What has he done? And now we're introduced to Pilate, who is the Roman authority in Jerusalem. And though his question was expected, the Jews are they're strangely caught off guard. Verse 30, what do you mean, Pilate? You know what's going on here. You know who this guy is. You know we want him dead. In fact, just last night, you're the very one who issued a Roman guard to go with us to the Garden of Gethsemane to apprehend this malefactor. So what do you mean? What accusation do you bring? What charges are you bringing against this man? Well, what's Pilate doing? Why would Pilate ask, if you will, a stupid question? Pilate was playing politics. And beloved, you'll appreciate, and you need to know this, that Pilate and the Jews were quite familiar with each other. You see, Pilate, he was a yes man, okay? He was a second-hander. He was a tool, if you will. He was used and abused by both the Romans and the Jews. He was on multiple occasions reprimanded by Caesar himself in front of his own subjects. He was humiliated by Rome in front of the very people he was supposed to be governing. For example... He once set up all these Roman symbols in Jerusalem, and the Jews deposed and petitioned Pilate to take down these idolatrous Roman symbols, and he wouldn't, so he returned to Caesarea, and the Jews, they marched to Caesarea, and thousands of them followed Pilate all the way back to his home, picketing outside of his home, crying out against Pilate, take down the images. Pilate got so frustrated with the thousands of Jews who were convened outside of his home that he said, if you don't get out of here, I'm going to kill everybody. He threatened them. And you know what the Jews did? They stretched their necks out and said, kill us then. Well, Rome hears about this revolt and this craziness down the pipe. And so Rome comes in and says, you can't have a governor killing thousands of his subjects. And so what they do is they slap Pilate on the wrist. They tell Pilate to take down the images. And the Jews go back to Jerusalem, triumphant, saying, ah, oh, Pilate, he's a patsy. We own Pilate. We own Pilate. 
Pilate was made to look a fool. He was, the, he was the incompetent boss. He was the Michael Scotts of sorts. He had lost the respect of his employees and the trust of upper management as well. And so here's Pilate interacting and dialoguing with the Jews. Nevertheless, whatever you think about Pilate, he's a smart guy. He's no fool. He knew that the Jews wanted something from him. He knew that they wanted and could only get what they wanted through Pilate. And Pilate knew who Jesus was and claimed to be. In fact, Matthew's gospel tells us this, that Pilate knew that the Jews had handed Jesus over out of envy. And what's more is that Pilate knew that the Jews simply assumed that he would submit and give in to what they wanted. So Pilate is here playing politics. He's playing politics because of his bruised ego. And thus he's motivated to begin this dialogue with the Jews. Pilate is thinking, you don't assume with me. You don't assume with me. You don't use me. I'm the governor after all. I'm the seat of Rome. I'm not used by you, but I use you. And you jolly well better acknowledge it. And you see, beloved, that's the verbal duel that's ensuing here in the passage before us. And so he asks, what charges do you bring against this man? Not because Pilate was ignorant of the charges the Jews had against Jesus, but now he is in the position to exercise some authority. Now that the Jews want something from Pilate, He's thinking to himself, I'm not fitting into your plans. You fit into my plans. I am nobody's patsy, if you will. He's the governor, after all. And that's the message he's trying to send to these Jews. And so now, religious hypocrisy, as demonstrated in the Jews, meets the bruised ego of an incompetent politician. And the Jews are just as smart as Pilate was. They're just as driven and they're going to play their own hand with Pilate. And the question is, who will outplay who? Look at verse 30. They respond. Look at their response. It's amazing. If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. If he were not an evildoer, we wouldn't have brought him here for nothing, Pilate. Pilate asks for the charges. He asks for the accusation. Did they give him the answer to his question? No. Did they submit the evidence against Jesus? No. Did they build their case against Jesus? Absolutely not. Precisely because there is no evidence. There are no accusations. There are no claims against this innocent man. There is no reason for Pilate to kill them. So what do they do? They ground their case. Look at the text on the basis of their own religious integrity. If he were not an evildoer, we would not have brought him to you. And we are, after all, the religious integritists, are we not? Are we not the religious ruling class of Israel? We are the priests, after all. And so Pilate throws it back in their face. They have a quick response, and so does Pilate. You take him then. Judge him according to your own law. What do I have to do with this man? But the Jews are thinking, but... But we don't have the right to execute anyone, Pilate. You know that. And that's what they say in verse 31. We can't do that, Pilate. Ah, Pilate snickers. Ah, so you do need me after all. You do need me. So who will prevail in this duel between the Jews and Pilate? Verse 32 says, neither. 
Because there's another force at work here. There's another dynamic governing it all. While the Jews are vying for control, while Pilate is vying for control, it is Jesus Christ who is ultimately in control. And the text reads thus, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die, because he would be handed over to Rome. If the Jews killed him, you know what they would have done? They would have had a good old-fashioned stoning. But the Scripture promises that he would be crucified. They pierced my hands and my feet, Psalm 22. He scourged Isaiah 53. And it's what Jesus said. He would be handed over to the Gentiles to be killed and not ultimately killed by the Jews, though they were guilty. And the irony of this all is that while Jesus is in control, the irony of it all is that the seemingly powerless one is absolutely powerful. The one who appears to have no control is in absolute control. And the Jews and the Romans are secondary causes. God is the primary cause. He's in control of the events leading up to his death, and he's in control of his death itself. And while Jesus takes upon himself the ignominy of the cross, he doesn't do it as a victim, but rather to secure the salvation and justification of all who would look to him on that cross, to all who would look to the person and work of Christ as the only way to be forgiven of sins before a holy God. And beloved, that's why we call it Good Friday and not Tragic Friday. He was no victim. And while the Jews in their religious hypocrisy are guilty, and while Pilate and Rome are guilty of political gamesmanship, God was using both of them to accomplish His will so that even the wrath of man will praise Him. Psalm 76, verse 10. But now, now the scene changes. Pilate turns back into the praetorium. And the verbal swordplay between the Pilate and the Jews, it will go on. And you know who wins? Well, you know who wins. The Jews win. Crucify, crucify. And what happens is they crucify him. And they release Barabbas. And so Pilate ultimately loses this little dialogue, this verbal battle. And so now Pilate turns in to face, for the first time, Jesus. And these two men meet. And Jesus, looking at him square in the nose, would probably see a short man about in his early 50s with some graying hair. He's got an expensive toga on and gilded sandals. And he's standing now between, on either side of him, two guards who are wearing short tunics and they're leaning on their spears with their legs apart. And Pilate asks the question in verse 32. Look what he says to Jesus as he's called to him. Rather, verse 33, are you the king of the Jews? Now, why would he ask that question? The Jews had mentioned nothing about him being a king here in John, but we find out from the other gospels that the Jews, when Pilate says, what's the accusation? They're backpedaling. They don't know what to say. What's the accusation? They didn't expect the question. And so you better think fast. You better provide an answer now. And you better speak your mind. And so the Jews speak up. They say, "Um, he claims to be the king. He opposes Caesar. And so Pilate turns in and says, you're the king 
of the Jews? Because if they can nail him on being a king, Pilate will kill him. You know why? Because if there's a king in here, then he's an insurrectionist and he opposes Caesar and he opposes Rome. And so he says, okay, I'll take your accusation. And he walks in and sees Jesus with puffed up eyes, a bloody lip, maybe a broken nose, disheveled hair, specks of dried blood all over his garment. And he says, you? You can't be a king. You're the king of the Jews? And Pilate is not believing the Jews who are saying and accusing him to be a king because he's scratching his head, walking back into the praetorium thinking, okay, if he is the king of the Jews, then the Jews certainly would have never delivered him over to me because the Jews hate me and they hate Rome, and Pilate knew it. And if they have a champion insurrectionist here, certainly they wouldn't hand him over. The first thing they would do is they would surround him and protect him. Pilate's no fool. They, they haven't pulled the wool over Pilate's eyes. And so by the time he finally does turn in to see Jesus, I think the Jesus who's standing before him, I think he's rather surprised. I think he's surprised to see such a weak man, such an unoppressive man. And so the text reads, you? Here's the question. You're the king of the Jews? And perhaps the soldiers on either side of him gave out a smirk. But Jesus responds. Look what Jesus says. He says, Pilate, are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? Because Jesus knows. Jesus knows that the Jews accused him of that. He says, Pilate, let me level with you. And isn't this amazing? The questioner, you're the king of the Jews, becomes the interrogated. Jesus turns the tables on him. Pilate, I, I know, and, and I know that you know that I'm not an insurrectionist. So why are you asking me if I'm a king? Are you really asking Pilate, or did someone else put you up to this? Do you really want to know, Pilate, whether I'm a king or not? And all of a sudden, very subtly, the tables have turned, and Jesus becomes the interrogator. Jesus becomes the questioner, and Pilate, he senses this interrogation. He senses this prodding by Jesus, and so he immediately repels, and look what he says. He says, am I a Jew? Am I a Jew? Your own people, your own chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Because as far as I'm concerned, I have no interest in this matter. I have no interest in Jewish matters. And I know this, you're not a revolutionary. You're not king of the Jews or whatever they've handed you over to me for. So what is the real issue here? What have, Pilate says, what have you done? And now Jesus sets forward the features of and the defining feature of his kingdom and rule. And here's where the rubber meets the road for us, okay? And so it's taken me this long to get to this text because this is what Christmas is all about. And so Jesus responds to Pilate, and look what he says to Pilate. After he says, what have you done? Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. Jesus now reveals the major feature of the kingdom of God, that it's just that. It's the kingdom of God. 
and not of this world. Verse 36 is stated in the negative. My kingdom is not of this world. And here's the idea. My kingdom is not worldly. That's the idea. My kingdom is not out of this world. It is not sourced in this world. It does not derive its authority from this fallen world. And this is most plainly demonstrated, Jesus goes on to say, by the fact that my servants aren't fighting to prevent my arrest from the Jewish leaders. And you know as well as I do, Pilate, that I have not resisted arrest. And if you know anything about my teachings, you know that I'm the one who says, render unto Caesar the thing that are Caesar's. My kingdom's not of this world, Pilate. And he goes on, and look what he says. Pilate therefore said to him, Oh, you're a king then. Jesus answered, You say rightly that I'm a king. For this cause was I born. He is a king. He is a king over a kingdom that's not of this world, that's not in this place. Rather, I have to be careful. It is in this place. It's just not of this place. Jesus is not saying that the kingdom is not in the world. It certainly is in the world. Or that the kingdom is not active in this world. Or that his servants are not exercising that kingdom in the world. What Jesus is saying is this kingdom is not worldly. He is talking about the origination of it. And Pilate is a smart guy, and so he knows what Jesus is saying. Pilate responds, oh, you are a king then. He knows what Jesus is saying. He knows that Jesus is saying, my kingdom comes from God himself. God is the author of Jesus' kingdom, and that's what Pilate understood. But Pilate, he's, he's getting uncomfortable with all this spiritual talk. You know, when you talk to a non-Christian, and you know, I do this at Pete's Coffee all the time, when I'm there in the community, they say, hey, what do you do? And I always tell them, I'm a preacher. And, and, you know, they don't like that. That sounds, or sometimes I say, I'm a minister. I'm a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that sounds kind of weird and culty to them. And so they don't know what to do, so they backpedal. So, okay, uh, they don't know what to do. And they know what I'm talking about. Because they, they know, they know, this is a spiritual man, and he's probably going to say something about Jesus, you know. Pilate's doing the same. He's getting uncomfortable. Jesus is saying, my kingdom comes from God, Pilate. And Pilate says, oh, 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 to soften it. Oh, you are a king then. Oh, I see. But his weak attempt does not detract Jesus. So Jesus responds by pushing Pilate's vision of his kingdom back towards heaven. And he says, you say rightly that I'm a king. And here it is, beloved. Here it is. You say rightly that I'm a king. For this cause was I born. And for this cause have I come into the world. What cause? To bring the kingdom of God. To reveal to those outside of the kingdom the very kingdom that he comes to inaugurate and bring. I come to bring God's kingdom, not man's. I come to bring not man-made religion. I come to bring something that's not of this world. Well, what's the cause? Look what he says. For this cause, for this reason I was born. What is it? What's the reason? So that, that I should bear witness to the truth. In the Gospel of John, who's the truth? Oh, you're saying, oh, Pastor Eric, you misspoke. It's what is the truth, right? No, no, no. In the Gospel of John, who's the truth? John 14, 15, I am the truth. The truth is a person. Jesus Christ is that truth. Inasmuch as he perfectly reveals God to us, 
Jesus Christ has come to reveal God to us. He has come to be a witness of God for us on our behalf, and He has come to offer God's salvation and His kingdom to us. And so do you know what that means, beloved? That we never have to be confused about God, about ourselves, about sin, about eternity, because all we have to do is devote ourselves to Jesus Christ, who is the truth. And in fact, that's why He came. He has come to be the truth revealed. He has come to be the truth about God. And so he says to Pilate, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And beloved, he is so gracious to Pilate here, is he not? Jesus is telling Pilate everything he needs to know. And you can hear implicitly his invitation to Pilate. Everyone, Pilate, who hears my voice is of the truth. That's amazing. It's amazing because the guy who's supposed to be on the stand, the guy who's on the dock now becomes the one who invites his own judge to be his follower. He's inviting the one who's about to condemn him to crucifixion. Pilate, follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. Pilate, listen to me. Pilate, embrace me. Pilate, believe in me. Pilate, follow me. Because everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Pilate, do you want the truth? And he's offered the opportunity of eternity. Eternity is looking at Pilate right in the nose. And that's what Christmas is about. The Christ standing before us all, offering eternity. And he looks up at you, non-Christian, and he says, Do you want the truth? Do you want to participate in a kingdom? That's why he came, you see. That's what he said. I've come for that reason, so that we might hear the truth, so that you might hear the truth, believe the truth, and embrace the truth, and follow Jesus Christ. That's what Christmas is all about. That's what Christ is all about. And sadly, what's Pilate's response? Sounds like a postmodernist, if you ask me. Sounds like the spirit of our own age. People say the Bible's not contemporary. Are you kidding me? Postmodernism is not modern. And post, yes, definitely after all of this. But the spirit of Pilate's time was the same as ours. What is truth? And you can hear the contempt behind his words. What is truth? There is no truth. You can hear the cynicism and the disgust. And ultimately, you can hear the despair. What is truth? Beloved, when there's no truth, there's no hope. Only madness and chaos. You know why? Because we're left to ourselves. This has got to be one of the saddest stories in the Bible. Not the crucifixion of Jesus, but to be at arm's length from the truth. 
to have Christ standing before you and then to walk away from him. What a tragedy. How about you? Do you want to know God? Do you want to know the truth? Not second-handedly, but intimately, personally. I mean, really know God. Then you must listen and look to Jesus Christ. You must come to the king if you want to participate in this kingdom, a kingdom that comes down from God, not of this world, a kingdom that brings you to God. And you say to me, well, Pastor Eric, how can I really know? Turn with me to the first chapter of John's gospel. John chapter 1. This is where we'll pick up next week as we continue Christmas according to the Christ. Let's read from verse 10 to 13. How can I know, Pastor? He, that is Jesus, was in the world. And the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, that's the Jews, there they are, and his own did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right. There it is. How shall I know? As many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Don't keep him at arm's length. Don't walk away from him. What is truth, Pilate asked contemptuously? Jesus Christ is the truth. Are you on the side of truth? Will you enter into the kingdom of God? Will you respond like a Christian or like Pontius Pilate? I pray that you respond like a Christian. Let's bow together before we sing. Lord, we think of the work that you were doing even as you stood before your condemner. While your life was but a few hours from being taken, you were inviting people to yourself. You didn't lose focus. Even as you suffered, you were stricken, smitten, and afflicted. And yet you were calling men like Pilate to salvation. And more than just Pilate, we see the accomplished work of salvation for a thief who was crucified right next to you. And we hear in your own voice, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We hear you interceding on behalf of sinners, even from the cross. Lord, I pray that as we celebrate this season, that it would not end here, but our lives would be a celebration of the person and work of Christ. 
that we would acknowledge, for this reason have you come. What reason? To offer the kingdom of God. Make us like John the Baptist who went forth to proclaim and prepare the way. Make us those who prepare and invite and bring people to come to know you. That's what Christmas is all about. That's why you came. That's why you went to the cross, so that we might believe and have everlasting life. Oh, Lord, give us perspective. Help us not to be distracted by gifts and trees and even family, good things, but not idols, Lord, gifts that simply point us back to the God we worship. Lord, as we sing now, give us understanding and help us to sing this song to your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.